If you have a Bible, open to the book of John. And we are going to get into our continued study working through um, John's gospel account, the life of Jesus. Before we do, though, we want to spend some time in prayer. I don't know if anybody entered in distracted this morning. Um, I know what it's like just trying to get your family out the door. And then to have to parade them on stage adds to a certain level of distraction, too. So, um, but we need, to, we need to pray just to ask God to help us and for God to really move in this time that we have together. So whether you're in the room or you're joining us online, really asking God to speak to us. So um, we didn't gather uh, together to hear from a man. We gathered together to hear from um, the living God. And uh, that might sound kind of crazy to some of you, um, but that's what we believe when we gather together around the Scriptures. We actually believe that God uh, will speak to us, and that's what we need and what we are going to see through our text uh, this morning. That is, uh, that's what actually gives us life, um, is this Word of God um, that has become flesh and lived and dwelt among us. So let's pray um, and just ask God for His help this morning. Father in heaven, we love you. And God, we thank you for this moment that you've already given us, God, just to lift our voices and to say these things about you, God, in particular, uh, just speaking to me about how you are the God who wipes away tears and who repays uh, wasted years. And God, I just thank you in my own story how that's been true. And God, there are some who are watching and some in the room, God, who um, that's their confession, that's their testimony. And God, they feel like the years have left them wasted. And so I'm praying for renewal this morning through your, the power of your spirit, this resurrection power, God, that you have. Would you bring that? God, I'm praying for redemption. Um, God, I'm praying for reconciliation through this moment together around your word. God, we are distracted. Um, some of us are discouraged and so, God, I'm praying that you um, would give us, um, by your Spirit, God, a moment of clarity where we'd be able to actually see you, God, that we'd be able to hear from you. And, God, so the noise of all the stuff that's just swirling around, God, you tell us in your word that you quiet us with your love. And so, God, I'm, uh, I'm asking for that. I'm believing in that right now. I want to invite you um, now just to, to pray on your own and pray for you. And this might be something that you're not used to. It might be something that's kind of new to you. There's no magic words in this moment other than you just saying to God, God, if you're real, would you speak to me? God, would you give me what I need to hear from you in this moment? Father, we trust you and we love you. Jesus, we ask for these things in your name. Amen. 
John chapter 6, and we're going to be, um, we're going to start in verse 22. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we put the text up on the screen for you, um, and uh, that way you can follow along with us. But I would encourage you to get a Bible if you don't have one. That way you can take it home. You can actually read it at home, and then you can bring it uh, here with you. Um, or you can also get the Version app, which is very handy as well, too, and has several different kind of reading plans. So you can actually engage with the scriptures on your own, not just on on Sunday. Um, You can take it everywhere you take your phone, which is everywhere. So John chapter 6, verse 22 says this, the next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the the boats and they went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So if you weren't with us last week or you didn't kind of get with the story that we shared last week, Jesus has just fed this massive crowd, uh, which demonstrated his compassion that he had for the people who were hungry, um, but also his power because it was a miraculous feeding where he fed close to 15, maybe 20,000 people with a simple uh, boy's lunch. And for these Jewish peasants who were gathered and who were following Jesus, and they're under the oppression of Herod and this Roman Empire, uh, a, a man like this who could feed thousands was very handy to have around. And so at the end of the story that where we left off last week, uh, he says, he says, well, if this is what he can do as just a traveling teacher, imagine what he could do with a role in government. And they try to force that on Jesus, which is why he uh, leaves or escapes from them. Now, in this section, this is going to start something very important in the book of John. It introduces the first of seven I am statements by Jesus in John's gospel. And it comes from, uh, in the book of Exodus, Moses, who's commissioned by God to free his people who are enslaved in the nation of Egypt. Uh, Moses says to God, I don't think I can do this, but who do I even tell the people who has sent me when I go there to say, let my people go? And, and, and God says to them, tell them, I am sent you. Tell, tell them, I am sent you. It's God who's referring to himself uh, because God can't look to anything else or anyone else to make sense of who he is. And so in this section, Jesus will point to himself and he's going to evoke this truth about who he is. He can say, I am And this is really important as we kind of continue through John's gospel, and especially today, because what what most people try to do is they try to define who Jesus is by attaching to him their, their own agenda or their own ideology, because Jesus is obviously a Republican, Or if you just had a very plain reading of the Bible, you'll see that very clearly Jesus is a Democrat. You're not enjoying this, are you? (laughs) Now, honestly, it can be confusing. Because there are people who speak so clearly and so directly about who Jesus is and what he stands for. People form their opinion of what they think the world should be like, and they tried to actually cram Jesus into that opinion or into that preference. And they try to tell us who Jesus is and what he stands for, but what we want to do is we want to look at the scripture, we want to say, Jesus, you tell us yourself who you are. 
who you think you are, what, what you are up to in the world instead of people trying to co-opt Jesus for their own agenda. And what we're going to see in this text is that people are great with Jesus as long as Jesus is doing everything that they think, they think he should do. Verse 25 says this, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? The Bible is very funny to me. This is kind of like, fancy seeing you here. They're all out of breath. They're like, Jesus, when did you get here? They just tracked him down. Now, what happens when you look at, at Jesus is he, he doesn't want his miracles to overshadow the message, and, and they're meant to be a sign that points to the ultimate message of who he is and what he's doing in the world. So he would often retreat after a miracle, and it's what he's done here, but they track him down because they're looking for more provision. And what Jesus is trying to reinforce to people here, what kind of king he is and what kind of kingdom that he's actually bringing and what his purpose on earth is, that he's there for the deeper longing of their hearts, not just these surface desires of their lives. You see, they're just tracking with him because they're looking for their next meal, but Jesus is wanting them to thrive in all of life. And he's there to solve problems that transcend the issues of politics and hunger. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Jesus says, I know why you're here. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. It's a really important statement that's going to thread its way through our story this morning. Jesus brings them together and says, listen, I, I know why you're here. I know you just want more food. You just want something else to eat. But I'm here to tell you that I'm actually the food you're looking for. I know you want your circumstances fixed. And that might be why some of you decided to come here this morning, or maybe that's why you're watching this, because you've got some circumstances in your life. I just want those fixed. And maybe if I tune in, maybe if I show up, maybe if I check this out, God will fix my circumstances. But what Jesus is saying to them and what he's saying today is that, listen, I am the thing that will actually change your heart. The transformation that you so desperately need in your life only comes through me. There's a way to live your life, Jesus tells us, so that you don't have to be constantly trying to recover from the way that your heart has been broken and abused. And Jesus is offering that. He's offering that through a union with God that he himself makes possible. And that's what Jesus wants for them. It's what he wants for us. And he tells us, don't work for the bread that spoils some versions say, don't work for the bread that perishes or dies. Now, these people, they're smart enough to pivot. They can kind of see that Jesus is getting off topic here, and so they try to steer him back. Verse 28, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. So they ask him, uh, okay, well, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Now, mind you, he's already done something miraculous for them, but they're saying, okay, uh, so you want us to believe, well, what sign, what next thing will you do for us? 
And then they hearken back to their history, their heritage, again from the book of Exodus. They say, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, whenever you see uh, in the scripture either verily, verily, or very truly, or truly, truly, Jesus is using very strong language. It's like a double down, like, look, I'm very serious about what I'm about to say next. So he's saying, very seriously, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. And they say, sir, always give us this bread. So here's what's happened. Jesus, he's fed them, and now he's claiming to be God. And they're like, well, what sign will you do? Moses gave us bread. Jesus is quick to remind him, actually, it wasn't Moses. It was God who gave the bread. And he sent me the bread of life to you. Now, how do you get this bread that satisfies? Jesus answers it. He says, it's a gift. It's not Moses that gives it to you. It's Jesus, my father. The bread of God from, the bread of God from heaven gives life. Now, this really starts to rattle the religious folks in the crowd. Because religion says, if you do enough good, if you get enough wins in the good column, you'll make it to heaven. But what Jesus is coming and saying is, I am the gift of heaven, come down to you. And he says, the work is to, is to believe. That's the work. Believe The religious people are saying, well, what do we do? What's the kind of hoop to jump through? What's the thing to accomplish? And Jesus says, no, no, it's, it's believe. Believe in the one that God has sent. That's the gospel. Your behavior springs forth out of that belief, but the, but the work is to believe. When, when Jesus is talking about belief, he's talking about the moment that you receive Jesus once for all, but then there's this invitation, we're going to see in just a moment, to continue to to feast on him. And the beauty and the grace and the majesty of Jesus, having that in your constant frame of mind. And what Jesus is doing here, he's teaching that our faith as followers of Jesus, our confidence or our trust has an object at its center. Christians are not just a people of faith. It's not just like, no, we have confidence. We have trust. We're a people who put our faith and put our trust and put our confidence in a particular thing, namely the person of Jesus. And what he's saying is here, to do the work of God is to cultivate faith and love and passion for Jesus. And the works of God are a growing love for Jesus and a growing understanding of who he is by the power of the Spirit of God. And in your life, the way that it shows up or the way that it looks is surrender, where our autonomy, and if you were here last week, we talked about this, where what John is kind of pushing us to is where the autonomy of man and the authority of God have this collision. And the surrender is where our autonomy collides with the authority of Jesus, and we say, your way is better than mine. You are Lord of every part of my life. And even though there's something in me that always wants to live my life my own way, there's something in me that I want to be king. I want to be king. I want to have sovereign rule and reign over every part of my life. But I will submit to you as Lord over all my life. And, and Jesus says, believe that 
believe in who I am, believe that I am the Son of God, receive that as life. But the people don't, they don't want to hear that. That's not what they came for. And so they keep kind of angling for what it is that they actually want. You see this in verse 30 and 34, because what effectively happens here is they say, look, we want what we want, Jesus. And this little kind of theological diversion that you're trying to kind of put us on right now, it's a game that we'll play with you for a moment, but we're going to bring this back to what it is that we really want. And if we've got to twist some kind of theological thinking just so that we get fed, we'll do it, but we want you to know what we want out of this encounter with you. And they say, yeah, okay, you, you say that there's a sign. We just were like, how about some more bread? Now, if you have children, you understand that children can be master negotiators. These three humans who are up here this morning, they look cute, but let me just tell you something. They are master manipulators. And nobody, I've never taught them, I've never taken them through like a sales class or a sales force management class or anything like that. They just have this inherent ability. My, my son is probably the best at it. Um, he will bring me something like a test that he's done well on. Like, so he has to work really hard in school, but, and so if he gets an A, he'll bring the test, or he, he's really into Legos. And so he'll create these like really cool kind of Lego scenes, and it's, there's like a superhero and a villain, and so he'll bring that, and he'll present that to me and be like, Dad, look what I built, and he'll tell me the whole story, and he's like, and this one's me, and this one's you, and we're superheroes heroes, and we're fighting the villains, and it's just very elaborate, and he goes on and on, and, and he's just like, he's tell me the whole thing, and then he'll say, be like, and you know who inspired me to make this, Dad? You. Because <laughs> you're such a great dad. And I mean, he just has me like leaning in, leaning in, and I was like, Bubba, I love you. And he goes, yeah, I love you too. You know what else I love, Dad? And I was like, what's that? He's like, ice cream. <laughs> and we've got some. That'd probably be a good thing before dinner, right? And I was, okay, so next thing, we're, we're eating ice cream, and then I get yelled at by his mom. But um, that's what's happening here with these people. They, they are convinced about what they want, and they'll say, Jesus, okay, we'll do this little dance with you in this conversation, but we want what we want. And it's not just my seven-year-old son. And it's not just the people here in front of Jesus. It's me and it's you too. Because we lead with what we think we need. It's like, God, okay, I'll do this thing for you. I'll kind of play the game, but I really need this job. I really have to have this relationship. I'll do the thing. I'll show up. I might even put a little money in the box, but God, that house we've had our eye on the car, the money, and we'll entertain this kind of theological back and forth. But in the end, God, I need what I need. I want what I want. But what we're going to see here and what we experience in life is that God refuses to be a vending machine. Here's what I mean. You ever put your money in the vending machine? You go to hit the chips or the Twix or whatever. It sticks against the glass. What's the next thing that you do? Uh, well, okay, that's how it goes sometimes. No. Well, first you look around because you're about to do something psychotic <laughs> and you don't want anybody to see you. Bang on the side of the thing. We'll try to shake it. Some of you like, will actually try to tilt the machine a little bit. Why? 
because I deserve that. I want what I want. I am owed that snack. And what happens with your life with God when you don't get what you think you deserve? When you don't get what you want, will you still follow? Because that's the moment that you learn if you are a disciple of Jesus. That's the moment you learn if you're a follower of Jesus. In verse 35, this is a big section here. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me and you still do not believe. And all those that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all those he've given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Jesus is pretty straightforward about what he's about and why he's there. He says, and I'll raise them up at the last day. Verse 41, at this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Massively offensive to this, these, these Jews. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, who father, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Jesus says, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life, and I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. Again, he's saying, listen, I know you think you know what you need, but what you really need is me. Because I can fill and satisfy you beyond what is temporary. And even in the desert, what happened with the manna was just to keep those people alive. And it was all, uh, the point of it was to reinforce their, their need for God, their dependence on God. And Jesus says, I am the bread that you need. Whatever it is that's making you desperate should drive you to me. Now, here's the problem with them, and here's the problem with us, too. They're so fixated on this other thing that their ability to move towards God and receive God, specifically Jesus himself, they just can't do it. Even when God says, I'm enough for you, they can't move away from what they think they need. Can you, can you imagine? Can you imagine a person saying to God, this is what I want. This is what I need. This is what I deserve. I must have this. And Jesus saying, no, no, no. Look, what you need most is me. And they're just saying, listen, you did, you did the bread thing. Just do it again. That's what we want. What would, do you need another lunch? We'll find one. We don't need all this. Stop telling us about who you are. We just want more of the bread. And Jesus is saying, look, it, it's me. I'm what you need the most. When Jesus uses this I am statement, the people hearing it, again, would be wildly offended because he's using the same words that God uses in Exodus chapter 3 when God gives his personal name to, to Moses. He introduces himself as I am who I am. It's Jehovah or Yahweh, the Lord. It's his personal name, full stop. 
my, my name is, is Paul Artino, but I can't terminate on myself because I'm not God. So, so if I stand up here and I say, Paul Artino is Paul Artino, I sound like a lunatic. But God says, I am who I am, or even better is, I be who I be. God defines himself. Nothing outside of himself can define who he is. Verse 51 I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, let's be very real. This is where it gets weird in this story. And the fact that if you've been around here for a while, like the fact that we take communion every week, it helps us to kind of understand what Jesus is getting at. But if you're in the crowd at this moment and you don't have that, you just got very concerned with the direction of this ministry. In fact, in the next verse, the people are even going to say, like, he doesn't even have enough flesh to feed all of us. Interesting enough, one of the big propagandas, one of the kind of smear campaigns against the early church, this, this, this kind of uh, Christian movement in the ancient Near East, the Roman Empire, in an attempt to discredit the church, actually had started this propaganda that they were cannibals, that that's what was happening in the secret gatherings of, of these, this church, the, the way. And, and in fact, they said, look, you can even find it in their text. And what Jesus is pointing to in this moment is not just the Lord's table or this moment of communion, but this great theological truth of the table, which is the reality of union with God being in Christ. D.A. Carson, who is a commentary, he says this. He says, John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. Rather, the Lord's Supper is about what is described by John 6. When the Bible talks about a personal and dynamic relationship with a believer in Jesus, it uses a phrase, union with or in Christ. You see this several places, uh, particularly in the New Testament, what it is to be in Christ. One scholar defines being in Christ as this intimate interrelatedness, like air that's breathed. So in Christ is how we relate to God. It's how God works. It's the apex of a Christian life, that I am in Christ and that he is in me. So the Christian life is not just about listening to the teaching of Jesus and then say, hey, go out there and do your best this week and try to imitate Jesus the best way you can. It's about the resurrection power of Jesus in us by the Holy Spirit of God, so that we live with joy, doing the work of God that he has ordained for us to walk in. And Jesus is saying, listen, I know you came here for bread. I know you came here because you're hungry. But union with me, you being in me and me being in you is what matters most. That's the satisfying bread of life. And it doesn't depend on your willpower but on your willingness to submit to Jesus as Lord over all your life. Look at verse 52. Now, this seems completely fair to me, this reaction that they have. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? That's a good question. That's a fair question. If I just showed up here and I said, hey, everybody, I'm welcome that you're here. Here's the message today. Everybody, would you just line up and come up and take a bite out of me? Now, I hope, I hope that you would say, 
we got to get out of here. This is like, this just got very weird. We, I don't think we can be here anymore. This is, we, now some of you'd be like, well, all right, I'll try it, whatever, kind of thing. <laughs> we need to talk. Actually, you don't need to talk to me. You need to find Neil, talk to him. Um, <laughs> what's interesting about this kind of interaction here is that this would be a great time for Jesus to just say, you know what, I'm sorry, that really didn't come out the way that I meant it. I don't think I said that quite clearly enough. Let me, let me, kinda, let me, let me tell you what I really mean. But what he does next is, is kind of crazy. He actually doubles down. Listen, listen to verse 53. He says, very truly, again, seriously, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that's come down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever." And, and now you might be thinking, okay, they must have understood what he was talking about. Because clearly, I mean, you're listening to it today and you're like, it can't mean that. It's, it's, it's got to be, I mean, then they could have been able to figure that out. But there's no way. I, let me ask you this. You, you ever kind of um, go through things or there's things that God says that you just don't understand at the time? You ever uh, see a teaching in the Bible where God's talking about what you should do with your time or with your money or how we should treat our bodies? And in the current of our culture, it's like, that just doesn't make sense. That just doesn't, it doesn't really fit. I mean, God says crazy things like we're supposed to forgive even our enemies, And all through the scriptures, what God does is he will offend the mind to reveal the heart. He will confront our rationale to reveal what's really inside of us. He will offend the way that we think to show what we really worship, what we're really about. Because God refuses to be a means to an end. Because he is the chief end of the life of a Christian. And sometimes the truth that we hear from Jesus is hard, but it's the truth that sets us free. He makes these strong declarations that there is a hunger in the human soul, and the only satisfaction for that hunger is found in him. This is what Jesus does. He goes to the least and the last and the lost and the outcast and those who feel like they don't belong, uh, that they'll never be accepted, and he's bringing them life and he's bringing them abundant life. And the tension is is that our culture conspires against us to live this kind of deep life that Jesus actually offers. Because the problem is that everything that we face in our culture tries to sell us a source of hope and significance that is almost always a lie. Because the life and the satisfaction that you deeply and truly desire cannot be found in things that our culture is trying to sell you. We're looking for something that's real. Every one of us in this room, if you're watching online, that's, the, that's, in, that's what's inside you. You're looking for something that's real and authentic and genuine from sources that are counterfeit. It's kind of like this. My, uh, my parents and, and Lauren's parents, they all live on the, 
southeast. And a few years ago, I went home, and my mom had this bowl of fruit uh, that was on the kitchen table. Uh, and as I got closer to it, I was kind of looking at it. And I was like, oh, that's like, it's fake fruit. It's like plastic fruit with kind of like styrofoam on the inside. But then I looked a little bit closer, uh, and one of the apples had uh, bite marks in it. And I was like, what in the world? I was like, Mom, who, uh, who took a bite out of that apple? And she's like, well, you know, it's your dad. I guess he was hungry, and he kind of walked by, and he took a bite out of the apple. So that's actually not the funny part of the story. The funny part is there's more than one piece of fruit in this bowl that has bite marks in it. So it means like several times the guy walked by and just tried it, and every, and every time uh, took a bite out of something that was fake. But listen, we live in a plastic fruit society. And culture knows you're starving, and they are pushing styrofoam fruit on you. It's appearing to be better than the real thing, when in reality, the true things that will actually feed and satisfy and sustain you are ignored and become irrelevant. C.S. Lewis calls it the sweet poison of the false infinite. The sweet poison of the false infinite, because fake feels awesome for a season. There's a moment where the, where the fake thing feels good. Sin starts out tasting good, but it's slowly killing your heart. No one, no one starts off saying, I want to destroy my life with an illusion. No one says that. No one says, I want to... I completely break my heart on something that is fake. Nobody says that. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need the Spirit of God in our lives to show us what is real and to reveal to us what leads to death. If you were to get, and with this, we're going to close, because I think this is where, where Jesus is driving us and where he's driving the people there. But if you were to get in touch with the core longings of your heart and dial down into what it is that you really want, I think that you'd find three things. There's, there's three things, I think, that are in the core of what a human heart is, is after. Um, to be known, to be loved or to be valued, and to be included. To be known, to be loved or valued, and to be included uh, I used to work with guest services, and I would tell them often when our, in our huddles before services, I said, you have to understand, when people are showing up here, they're asking these questions. Will they love me? Can I be known by them? Will I be known here? Will I be seen here? Will I be heard here? Will I be valued here? Will I be included? You just think about that. When you show up in a new environment, when you show up in a new place, those are the things that you're really asking. Those are the things that you ask when you show up here. We want to be known because we feel invisible in the world. We give so much of ourselves to others. We let people in so they'll love us, so they'll accept us. And what happens? They just move on to the next. In fact, we've so diluted this in our culture to where it can be answered with a simple swipe. We want to be loved. We feel the constant anxiety to prove our worth and value? How do we prove how valuable I am in relationships, in school? There's tremendous pressure on young people in this. In business, online with whatever you present to the world to try to show how valuable you are or how worth it you are. 
and we feel like our value is so fragile and so dependent on our ability to perform and to oppress or to acquire. Will I be included? We have this haunting feeling of being excluded. It feels like there's a circle around our life that's like slowly shrinking around us. And our greatest fear is that one day we're going to wake up and we're going to be outside that circle. It's closed in on us and we're on the outside looking in. We're always in danger of being left out. Everyone is trying to deal with this angst that's in us. So the invitation to partake in something that will actually satisfy you is all over the Bible. The Bible is not a book that's disconnected from the human experience and from real life. And so this angst that we all experience and we all feel, it's all throughout the scriptures. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55 says this, Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? Get this verse. Listen to this. And why labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the, in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Why do you put so much work into what's not working? There's a, a pastor, his name is Matt Chandler, and he says there's four wells or four places that we draw from to try to get this satisfaction that we so desire, how we try to answer these longings. There's four places that we kind of dial into. The, the first is a better version of yourself. If I could just kind of achieve or attain a better version of myself, if that doesn't work, we try to find somebody else who will satisfy us. Uh, if that doesn't work, then we try to find like stuff that will satisfy that longing. And then lastly, and this might be the most scary, honestly, of all of them, is that religion might actually satisfy those longings. And all of those pursuits are not necessarily bad things. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have stuff or you shouldn't have people in your life or you shouldn't try to kind of be a better version of yourself. They just can't be the ultimate things. They can't be the things that you depend on for life, the things that you depend on for ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment. Because each of those things are trying to answer a deeper question that they lack the ability to answer. If you try to pursue like a, a better version of myself, you're really trying to answer that question, well, how do I matter? How do I make myself what I'm supposed to be? Because we're not just looking for success or fame in life. We're actually looking for meaning. And in our pursuit of that, our hearts can often be a casualty of that success somebody else to satisfy me. Am I loved? If you want a surefire way to destroy a relationship, try to put that pressure on the other person. You'll be the person who completes me. You'll be the person who brings me ultimate fulfillment and ultimate satisfaction. No human can bear that weight. The stuff, do I, do I measure up? If I could just get more more what? How do you know when you have enough? I don't. I just need more. And it's so difficult because in a culture where we don't really have a rite of passage, how do we know when we've arrived? When I worked with, with college students, with young adults, it was, it was constantly kind of grappling and talking to, with young men who are asking this question, how do I know when I'm a man? How do I know when I've arrived? Same thing for a woman. How do I know when I'm truly a, a woman now? And we're just left, you know, am I? Do I measure up? 
And here's what's so brutal for this generation that's coming behind us. They all walk around with a device that's constantly saying to them, you don't measure up. You're you're not enough. No matter how pretty you are, you're not as pretty as her. No, No matter how wealthy you might be, you're not as wealthy as them. No matter how successful you are, you're not and, and, and you look at the rise in anxiety and depression and how it correlates with a rise in screen time, and it fertilizes in all of us a discontent. And it says, you don't measure up. You're not enough. And it's not just kids. It's not just youth. It's not just college students. It's not just teenagers. It's, it's all of us. It's all of us. You're laying in bed at night, and you're looking, and you're like, man, I've never had dinner at Bora Bora before. I that would be great. My, my car is only a 2017. I don't have enough. I remember when I used to be in, in shape like that. You look over at your spouse, I remember when they used to be in shape like that. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I had more shiplap in my house. <laughs> or board and batten, which is a new one I just heard that's important that we have to have. And this is, how, this is how our lives are. We just constantly, do I matter? Do I measure up? And then the last one, religion, which is this frantic exercise that makes people think I'm a good person. Listen, if it does not lead to a deeper affection for Jesus and a deeper self-sacrificing love for others, all it does is create arrogance and judgmental people, and Jesus has some very harsh things to say about those people. Am I, am I good? The answer isn't yes because of your checklist. That's not how God grades. And religion says you have to make your own checklist. And so you present that to God. You say, God, I made all A's. And he says, on what test? God is the A. You pass because of Jesus, not because of what you do. And as a person who didn't pass a whole lot of tests in their life, I say amen to that. And with this, we're done. Here's why Jesus brings the bread of life to us. And here's why it's so important for us right now. Because in a culture that says your identity is in your sexual orientation or preference, that your identity is what you own or what you do and how much you make and how you are perceived and what political party you're a part of. Jesus is saying, no, your identity is in me. All other identities must submit to an identity in him. And he says, look, because that's the path that leads to life. That's the staggering wonder of what Jesus offers. He gives us the reality of being known, fully known, and being fully loved, and being fully included in a way that no other person or thing or achievement can ever offer you. That's what makes you a child of God. So underneath all of your efforts to be seen and all your efforts to be loved and included in this room, in this world, there is a longing that can only be fully and finally satisfied in Jesus who is the bread of life. And that's the invitation. It doesn't matter why you're here. 
It doesn't matter why you're listening, why you showed up, why you're looking at this. I mean, these people were, were here just because they just wanted another miracle. It doesn't matter. Here's the offer. Do you want to be fully, finally satisfied? Like really satisfied. Not just that I had a great meal once and now I'm starving again. Are, are you tired of giving everything to that which is stealing life from you? Because the all-satisfying, soul-nourishing bread of life is available today. It's Jesus. He's here. And that invitation is open to you. And I pray that you take it. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, I'm so thankful for um, not just this word, but God, that this word is true about you. God, that you are the very bread of life. And God, the, the life that we have with you is eternal, but God, it's abundant now. And God, um, you're not promising a life that will never have issues or never have hurts or never have pains or never have problems. But God, you're promising a life where we can have joy and peace and comfort in the midst of all those things. God, you're promising a life where we don't have to constantly go to that which breaks our heart and abuses us and kills us. And so, God, I'm praying for those who are in the room or those who are listening online, God. Some of whom who've known you, God, walked with you, but maybe they've been in a season of life, God, where they've looked for other sources of life. And, God, today it might be a return. God, I'm praying for the person who's listening or maybe in the room, God, who they've not yet tasted, God, not yet experienced you as the bread of life. And God, I just pray today that in a really supernatural way, God, that you might just make them extremely tired of all the things that they've chased. And God, that this moment might, might be a moment of surrender for them and they can finally come home to you. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray, amen.